This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today we're doing the film Only Yesterday, and I'll kick us off. Only Yesterday came out in 1991. It's a Japanese animated film from Studio Ghibli. The lead character, Taiko, is a 27-year-old single woman living and working in Tokyo. Taiko takes a train to rural Japan, where she stays with her sister-in-law's family. The visit forces her to rethink her life. The film is punctuated with flashbacks to Taiko's childhood. These little vignettes show her as a 10-year-old, interacting with her family and with other children. We find out that Taiko struggled in math. She struggled with multiplying fractions. Her parents openly wondered if she might be a bit thick. It's easy to deal with fractions if you simply follow the instructions the teachers give you. But if you try to understand what it really means to multiply a fourth by a fourth or divide a fourth by a fifth, the whole exercise becomes deeply confusing. The students who are good at fractions are good at them because they don't think about them, rather than because they do. Tycho is bad at fractions not because she is dumb, but because she is smart. Yet the 27-year-old Tycho has followed directions. She's moved to Tokyo, obtained a good job, and achieved all of the things a modern Japanese woman is socially encouraged to achieve, apart from a husband, that is. A weaker film might have uncritically celebrated her position. But it, it becomes clear that the city job does not make Taiko happy. She does want a relationship, and she feels drawn to traditional rural life. During her stay, she spends a lot of time with a farmer named Toshio. Toshio is an interesting fellow. He plays Hungarian music in his truck. He criticizes market-driven agricultural reforms. He's also an organic farmer, but that's the least interesting thing about him. The director, Isao Takahata, is clearly expressing solidarity with the Eastern European farmers who, in 1991, faced the fall of communism. Most of the famous Studio Ghibli films are surrealist and come from Hayao Miyazaki. In many of Miyazaki's films, punches are pulled. Miyazaki likes a happy ending. In films like Spirited Away, Princess Manoke, or My Neighbor Tortoro, Miyazaki brushes up against serious themes, but declines to go all the way. The strength of Miyazaki's corpus is that it is always evident to his fans how he might have ended his films, but the weakness is that they never end the way they might have done. Only Yesterday is decidedly not a Miyazaki film. It is too realist, there is far more dialogue, the pacing is slower, and the themes are much more adult. Takahata directed Grave of the Fireflies and The Tale of Princess Kaguya, two of the saddest animated films you can find anywhere. How, then, does he choose to end this film? There's an old woman in the house who thinks she knows how to solve Taiko's problems. The old woman points out that Taiko doesn't have to return to Tokyo. She can stay in the village and marry Toshio. This is treated as a ridiculous, senile suggestion. Taiko flees the room. She thinks about what a poser she is, pretending to enjoy rural life when she is nothing more than a tourist. Things even get a bit meta. Takahata has Taiko say that she could only stay in the village if her life were a film. Taiko gets caught in a rainstorm. Toshio rescues her. They drive around for a while, talking, and then he brings her back to the house. The next day, she gets on the train to return to Tokyo. After the train leaves the station, she reconsiders. There really is no reason she must return to Tokyo. The notion that she has to live in the city and work a job she doesn't enjoy with no hope of finding a partner is just that, a notion. She gets off the train at the next station, crosses the platform, and heads back. As she does this, all the children from her school days appear, celebrating her decision to follow her own thinking instead of the path society laid down before her. Yes, Unlike many other Takahata films, this one has a happy ending. And yet, I think Takahata does his due diligence in emphasizing that in real life, nine times out of ten, this kind of story ends sadly. The film is feminist in the best sense of the word. Taiko is a liberated woman not because she goes to work a miserable job in the big city, but because she is able to think for herself and make decisions that conflict with prevailing social norms. Going to work a miserable job in the city was not freedom. It was a form of submission to capital. 
Tycho recognizes this and falls in love with the vaguely communist farmer instead. Of course, if everyone followed Tycho, capitalism could not function. So it is essential that people like Tycho are made to believe that they must work miserable jobs in the city, that their freedom is identical to the size of their wallet. Tycho is only able to move to the village by overcoming ideology. She is able to do this only because she is so clever that she could not understand math. She is the exception, not the rule. Takahata makes this clear. In a society with very little class consciousness, in which capitalist ideology is dominant, there can be a handful of individual rebellions. The system can easily withstand the loss of a few thousand taikos. Tokyo will go on expanding at the expense of the surrounding countryside. And that is why, in Takahata's next film, Pompoko, the raccoons of Japan are forced to begin a terror campaign against the city of Tokyo. In the end, that campaign fails, and the raccoons are forced to adapt to urban life. It all builds up to the tale of Princess Kaguya, in which the gods intervene to rescue a young girl from having to live a human life. As they lead her away over the course of three minutes, her parents cry and cry, but the gods pay no attention. Their daughter is taken away and made to forget them. It's the last scene in the last film of Takahata's career. He died in 2018 at the age of 82. May he rest in peace. All right, let's see what Helen thinks. Okay, well, thanks for picking this film, Benjamin. I enjoyed it, and I wasn't familiar with Studio Ghibli that much. I mean, obviously, just uh, in popular culture, and I had the impression, I think you mentioned the other director who's more prevalent, um, you know, there was a lot more whimsy in, in these films. And this film, you know, struck me as quite unusual. Um, obviously, you know, in the quote unquote West, we see animations just like most of uh, media that is um, dominant, that is positional, with villains, forward thrusting. And this was much more about obviously the inner world, more about action, about reflection, thoughtfulness nostalgia and melancholy even, which is to do with getting what you want, but realizing what you want doesn't have some transcendent power. So as you say, it's not um, this, he, he gets meta and refers to the fact that she might get her happy ending if this were a film, indeed it's a film but it's not a, a happy ending that is one that is sort of um, quite the walking off into sunset that we are familiar with. It, it is tinged with uh, melancholy, I think, as is the rest of the film. You know, it, it's, it's highly, um, it's uh, highly touched by realism, but, you know, with magical realism as well. A sort of fairy tale for adults. I think we have this um, vision of Japan, and I think this is true. I'm not that familiar with Japanese culture, perhaps you're more familiar than me, um, with the infantilized adult population. You know, a very uh, alienated um, corporate sort of world where, uh, Adults um, get a bit of reprieve through um, certain things like uh, enjoying childlike escape and uh, the sorts of things like fetish bars and stuff in in Japan. It seems to be you know these sort of forms of escape, um, and this stands in contrast to it. And perhaps that you know infantilized vision is is a you know an almost a bit um, of a projection from the West, but. Um, it does seem like this is uh, an adult film, <laughs> which uh, has some, you know, child childlike touches to it, rather than it being sort of a like a Marvel type film for infantilized adults. It is interesting that it's set in 1982. I mean, there's this idea that Japan is perhaps like a bit further ahead than some other countries in terms of what capitalism has done to it, and um, I knew that friends and family that lives in, that live in southern Europe it feels like a generation behind but it does you know these these are themes that are very relevant today and I don't know if that's to say that indeed Japan is sort of a generation ahead in terms of where capitalism has taken it or whether things don't change <laughs> really as in uh, we are still in this capitalist system it's not so different as we all sort of potentially hope in our kind of accelerationist um vision for what's on the other side. Obviously, there's a, a you know, a, a Marxist element. You mentioned uh, the director's support for farmers in Eastern Europe. As we have the production of the, um, the 
the safflower making um, makeup and how much uh, work and how much um, product must go into making something very, you know, it just, it has, it has a little bit of a flavor of the work of Marx in this sort of detail there. And also did really like the kind of anti-Orientalist description of nature that comes up a few times where um, Tycho talks about, she, she looks off into the distance and is, you know, in awe of all the trees and all this kind of stuff. And, um, the male character says, actually, you know, what you're seeing isn't isn't really nature or that nature always is a joint venture between people and the earth. It's not like um, there is this mother earth and we are, um, you know, we have destroyed it or whatever, which, you know, there's an element of truth to that, of course. But um, actually, this vision is much more it's not it's not so primitive. It's understanding that actually um, it's not um, work and it's not. Um, progress per se that is uh, capitalist and that um, there isn't really a return to nature ever. You know, we can't just live at one with anything. Nature exists in its non-at-oneness and we are, you know, even more not at one than not, not at oneness with nature in our um, self-divided subjectivity. I also, you know, obviously time and memory are key themes here interesting sort of this forward moving train journey and you have this sort of set of 10 days which is sort of like a um a really kind of particular moment in time that sort of in a kind of fan-like way kaleidoscopes out into these little bits of memory that that um fold in on the present moment and obviously this is very true in terms of how our experience our subjective experience of time exists um but i kind of wanted to talk about memory and i won't go on for very long about that but memory and trauma because I feel like today, so much of the really riven Hollywood forms of narrative are marked by a version of trauma that is really reductive and really oppositional and is seen in um, society today in the trends of um, why it is important to identify with certain aspects of things that have happened to us, especially when they are canonized within um, you know, products that have come up at certain moments so you know in 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 capitalism where we are alienated we are encouraged to cling on to things like identity identity signifiers and um there's always a new identity that could be the potential other who we must conquer in our niceness and they must teach us something a border that's arbitrarily erected and we we overcome it um just as human moments and often trauma moments are sort of foes that exist and at one time it might be you know something to do with something happening in childhood or some grievance that we have and these are commoditized moments that the latest thing is we 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 find solutions to 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 overcome and even trauma itself becomes a commodity and we have things like all these apps these uh you've talked so many times in the difference between psychoanalysis and therapy culture um but i just thought it was interesting that a lot of these moments that happen in Tycho's lives, you know, they, they are kind of traumatic, but in the most mundane way. Her sisters are really mean to her. She has aspirations that are really embarrassing. She has tiny moments that, are, and it does speak to the truth that actually we sometimes think that, you know, if we look at a Hollywood movie and there's sort of some ghost, as in um, there's, a, there's something that is being carried with the uh, protagonist that they must overcome in their hero's journey or whatever. But these are just moments that mark you, insignificant moments. And generally, some things that are extremely traumatic for some people, and this is the, you know, the infinite nature of subjectivity. It's not everybody is the same in their difference. Some people find one insignificant moment of being told off as a child as something that they carry with them and marks them forever, and not some thing that is considered to be um, in wider more sort of commoditized society as a tick box exercise of something terrible. And I just really liked these, uh, instead of these being some, you know, terrible markers that then must be overcome, there, there's an okayness to them. And there's also a profundity in this sort of traumatic nature to these very normal things. And I thought that was very, very unusual. And I liked it. All right, let's find out what Nina thinks. Hmm. <laughs> well, I'm. I think this is the first animation proper we've done. I think on the lack. I 
must confess to uh, a deep-seated suspicion of animation as a genre. I, I don't quite know why, and I was trying to uh, interrogate myself on a deep sort of psychoanalytic stroke aesthetic level as to why I might be suspicious of animation. And I, I think it's a combination of things. The only animation I'm not really suspicious of is South Park, partly because <laughs> I'm Gen X, and B, because it's so badly uh, made. It's so deliberately, explicitly simplistic and, you know, done in this very uh, childish way that I think uh, whatever power, you know, emotional or political that South Park has comes not from the animation, but almost from the negation of the animation. So I, I think I'm suspicious of animation in general, because I find it very manipulative, because it is at one remove, of course, from representation, but nevertheless, for example, in a story like this, it is also directly conjuring a story and a particular aesthetic, uh, and the Japanese aesthetic insofar as we can see it here, which I guess is quite uh, cliched now. And there, there was something interesting about this film being from 1991, by the way. I, you know, I didn't originally, when I started watching it, realize how old it was. Um, and I think it reminded me of Gilbert Grape, which we've covered in some ways. It's a kind of, uh, sort of, you know, Gilbert Grape is maybe harsher in some ways, uh, definitely, but the kind of idea of choo having to choose between a kind of conformist life and between work and between love and why can't you actually have a different way of living which might incorporate both work and love. So so in Gilbert Grape, the, the, the uh, caravan comes back through the next year with the sort of hint or the potential promise of a reuniting of Gilbert with the Juliet Lewis character. And here, of course, the train, she, she takes the train back um, to the village. Um, and it's not like she has to choose between work and love, potentially. You know, it's not, it's, it's a sort of uh, neither nor. Um, obviously, Japan has a kind of, you know, long time economic stagnation, but also a decline in birth rates. Um, and I, there was something very romantic about this film in the sense that it was a, offered perhaps a third way between a kind of um, a, a sort of uh, childless work dominated city life or a traditional life but there's a third way which is somewhere in between which is maybe a kind of artisanal life like the organic farming which I do think is significant actually and and the the love which is both modern and ancient but back to the animation I I find Japanese animation, this is to generalize horribly, by the way, um, a little bit um, almost creepy <laughs> in the sort of gigantic eyes. Oh, and this is not just Japanese animation, other animation too. The, the kind of excessive facial gestures, uh, a kind of form of emotional manipulation at the level of almost like the emoji face. Um I find it very difficult. I don't know whether that's something in me. And I also uh, think that uh, pornographic animation, whatever you call it, uh, hentai, is, it does very bad things to people's heads. So I'm not suggesting for a second that this, this film, which is indeed very sweet and moving and nostalgic and Proustian and um, has a maturity which i think helen was talking about the kind of adultness of it you know the the kind of putting away childish things um but in a sort of sweet and moving and gentle and and even slightly sad way and and it reminded me of another japanese film uh which was late spring by ozu who is a fantastic director uh and the female character the daughter of the father in that film is also 27 uh like uh the the main character here um, and she is, uh, in a way, in that position of not wanting to get married. So, so clinging on to, in the Ozu case, uh, caring for her father and having quite a sort of gentle life in which she sort of runs the house. Um, and she doesn't want to take the step into a, the kind of adulthood that would be represented by marriage. And so I think this film must, at least on some level, be a reference back to Ozu as well. And and it's not the only Ozu film in which he tackles this question. And I think it's an interesting 
one for any civilization, I suppose, to think about when it is, if it is, <laughs> that people become mature and what maturity means, what adulthood really means, and the way in which we can or cannot, as Helen pointed out, integrate our childhood into our adulthood. And in that sense, the film is very beautiful in that sense. The, the, the process of integration of these minor moments, seemingly minor moments, we all have them. I sometimes think of writing, you know, these childhood memories down, what it would mean just to sort of, as, as they come back to you, which they increasingly do, the older you get. And it's very strange, you know, it's very Bergsonian, the way in which memory works, uh, this question of involuntary memory. It's not always obvious why a particular scene, A, gets stuck in your head in the first place. Why is it particularly vivid? Why do you remember this scene and not all the others? And B, why this scene or a series of scenes come back to you as an adult in situations that it doesn't seem obviously immediate why this scene would recur. And then they're not always um, pleasant scenes. They're often scenes of shame or embarrassment or wishing that you could have said or done something different. But they clearly have an educative uh, dimension. I think it would be the positive way of trying to understand them. Not not so functional. I wouldn't want to reduce it to simply, oh, you know, memory A, situation B, you know, there's a functional relation. I don't think it's functional. I think it's far more poetic and mysterious. But nevertheless, I do think that our memories, the ones we have, the ones we can conjure up ourselves, the ones that return involuntarily, come back for a reason um, but that reason might be slightly uh, mysterious. And I, I think to to be able to look back and to integrate the kind of person you were with the kind of person you are now and to see how either you've developed or you've stayed the same or both <laughs> is actually quite a beautiful exercise. Um, there's something about the pacing of this film which is very nicely done, although in a highly time-pressured environment, it's also a reminder, actually, of, of how slow things probably should be, if you like. There are some very beautiful scenes. Again, I struggle with the, the animated quality of them, you know, the sunset, which isn't the, the real uh, representation of the, of the sunset. I, I, I find the remove like difficult to bear. I, I'm sure there is some deranged, almost quasi theological theory of animation, uh, that must be out there. Uh, but perhaps I should, I should write. Um, so I, I did enjoy this film, but I, I do struggle with the, with the something I mean, it avoided being cloying, but it was very sweet. And perhaps because I'm, I tend towards an appreciation of bleaker things, I, I find it difficult to, to take in some ways, which probably says something about me that isn't necessarily particularly pleasant. But I'm glad for the opportunity to have watched it. So thank you, Benjamin, for this choice. Interesting. Yeah, I thought about picking Grave of the Fireflies or Princess Kaguya, but I thought that this one in its realism and smallness was especially interesting, uh, even if those others might have been bleaker. That this one was was just kind of fun. I, I know Helen hates surreal stuff, so I was going to stay well away from Pompoko. Helen, you muted. You I muted. I unmuted myself. Yeah. Um, do I hate surreal stuff? It's funny. I. I don't know. <laughs> Do I go not? Sometimes real stuff I like, but it can be difficult to um, enter into it. And I always just sort of question where where it's going. Like, what's the point? Maybe I have too much of an attachment to a point that I do enjoy point. It was kind of a little bit of a challenge <laughs> I set myself. I went, is there a Studio Ghibli film that all three of us might like? Is there such a thing? <laughs> can I find it? Well, you probably did, to be fair. I don't yeah. know if you guys have any theory about animation or whether you can assist me psychoanalytically with my slight 
uh, wariness. And it's it's not yeah. just like I say, it's not just Japanese animation. It's kind of Disney. It's all yeah. it's all all kinds of animation apart from really South Park, which is just basically clunky, so clunky that. Yeah, so I, I think mind. that what's mm-hmm. going on here, and I respect it because there's something fundamentally Platonist about the objection, which is that it's another layer of mimesis. It's another yes. layer of imitation <laughs> above the film. And therefore, there's even more potential for deception than there would ordinarily be because another layer of imitation has been plastered on top of. Uh, all I would really say in response to it is that a film itself is such is so far removed from form already that what's just a little more. And in some ways, that little more can remind you that all film is mimetic and deceptive Mm. in the same kind of way in which animation is. I think that's a brilliant theory, Benjamin. I am actually going to accept that. I think I think you're right. I think that they the the, it's the extra layer of removal, as you say, um, which I find disconcerting. I find it potentially emi- very emotionally manipulative. Mm-hmm. And I found that the final scene of this film, although it's moving, I, I was actually kind of annoyed by being moved by it. You know, <laughs> that kind of feeling yeah. where you, you you are literally, and again, it's done so well. So it's, I, you know, it's a very, and this film was, um, I was just, you know, checking out how well it did. It did amazingly well. It was like the highest grossing film in Japan in 91. Like, you know, it was a, it was a surprise smash hit. So clearly people went to see it, told their friends, you know, it, it's, it's a lovely moving film. And, but I, I did feel this kind of like uh, slightly an annoyed Manipulated, manipulated pain. At the <laughs> but it's, it's, it's interesting because so much, you know, it, it reminds me of things like what we've talked about the wolf and wolf's clothing and the wolf and sheep's clothing. Yeah. But, you know, often film is self referential, you know, it screens and plays within plays and films about filmmaking and what have you. But it is different. That's different to this sort of level, because that's a sort of an exposed and exposing. And this is maybe a further covering up. We're making it an animation at the moment. And it's been an interesting exercise because I know nothing about animation. But Mm. we did this sort of trial run. um, I think it was last year. I've lost track of time. I think it was last year um, with motion capture. And that's interesting because it's sort of like a... um, what tends to be done in motion capture is like very CGI looking and very kind of 3D and um, it's a certain, and it's, it's, a, it's an art form in itself, but we've actually decided to revert to still using those same techniques, but with an actual like painterly look with an artist. So it's literally like an animated painting. So I don't know if that's going to work because it just, it really, there was something that was added in that um, because it's not, you know, it's not 3D is not more realistic, realistic. It's less, you know, it's like, it's, it's another, as you say, level of fake. Um, and it just doesn't, it didn't jive. Well, it, it did. It, 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 we didn't get like so far in it because it takes ages, but it's just really interesting to see what impact that has on the aesthetic and the ethos of what you're trying to do. Mm. I, I see a strong generational effect here. My mother, for instance, just cannot watch an animated film. The fact that it's animated makes it seem to her obviously ridiculous and silly and not something to spend time on. Uh, then you have people who are a little bit younger for whom a 2D animated film can be t- taken seriously. But once it's 3D or computer animated, it's obviously silly. Mm. Uh, and I yeah, think that. Yeah, there's always this extra level of remove, which reminds you that all film is a little silly. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it reminds me of um, like Bon Dessiné in, in France, which uh, obviously, you know, Tintin is a Belgian thing, but I mean, obviously Tintin isn't so serious, but it does have a, it, you know, it's, it's, it's not just escapism for children, you know, I think it has, you know, grown up feel to it as well. And um in, in France, there are lots of very serious grown-up Bond destiny, which is way before the sort of, is maybe Nini pointed out, that's sort of like, <laughs> this is, this sounds, you know, there's a sort of like um, video gamer, hentai, mm-hmm. nerd culture sort of thing. Oh, and now the argument that can a video game be art? Can it be mm. compared to a live action film or talked about in the same way? It oh does yeah, do well, different things. obviously, Civ Five 
<laughs> to go back to our recurring shared love. Um, no, I, I, I agree. And it's, it's interesting. It just reminded me because I did used to read lots of graphic novels and stuff in the 90s, right? These are a big thing. And the whole thing was like they're comics, but they're slightly more mature, potentially. Um, and I'm trying to think what other animation. I mean, obviously, children's cartoons were around. El Dorado, Cities of Gold. Absolutely fantastic cartoon. I'm sure you, you guys didn't watch it. Um, I've <laughs> or, seen that. Have you? Okay. And yeah. Dog, Ta- Dog Tanyan was great. Oh, the, I remember that rings a bell. And these were like French cartoons or Spanish yeah. cartoons or something that were kind of dubbed really badly. Uh, they were quite weird. Uh, there was one like Ulysses in space. It was like there was like robots in space. Anyway, I, I don't I don't remember. But um, so, yeah, I think there is this question of what you're used to. I definitely agree that like CGI is not something that appeals at all. Like the, the utter fakeness of this is like impossible to deal with. I, I don't know. I mean, I was watching last night. I watched the Dennis Potter play for today, which is Brimstone and Treacle, which was uh, uh, written and made in 1976 but wasn't screened until the 80s because it's so controversial it's a very very transgressive piece of work but here you have something which is basically like a a play transported to tv um for the masses right but it's very intellectual it's very metaphysical it's very uh theological even um you know serious piece of 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 you know in a way elite and popular art together and but it requires a great deal of acting if you see what I mean uh you know really serious dialogue and and character playing and 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 so on and, and I think maybe just the clan but but the budget was ter- was tiny right these things look awful like they're like really badly made for tv things in a way although the you know the angles are great and so on but you know they don't have a lot of money to make these they were like they made more than 300 play for today's um and a lot of British tv looks quite bad from the 70s and 80s right um but the the skill and the quality of the acting and writing is just superb. So I, I suppose again, animation and contemporary animated cinema and anime and all this stuff, just like I just yeah, maybe I just sort of think it's cheating or something. Like, which is- <laughs> but it's true because it is all cheating. You know, it's like the the thing between magic and and film, what have you, and sort of lulling you into this dreamlike state and sort of subverting and you know the conscious mind whatever but yeah it's a little bit too obvious but on the other hand which is maybe one one element of mimesis removed which i find difficult because it's it's an element of mimesis removed it's too obviously mimetic i find theater difficult to get into but maybe just because i haven't seen so many enough good plays and i do know people who i really respect who love theater Mm. Maybe it's too stagey. <laughs> no, there's the musical problem. Yeah, the oh, tendency yeah. for <laughs> yeah, the musical That's problem. Quite, yes, the musicals. The movement of the American yeah. form of the musical into the theater to the point where it crowds out everything else, and everything you go to has cloying singing in it. No, I can't. But yeah, some I've, I've struggled. I struggled it. with musicals. Now, the interesting thing is, just as Nina says, oh, I can tolerate animation if it's South Park. I can tolerate musicals written by the creators of South Park, like the Book of Mormon. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is satire, right? Well, I don't know. Is it? I haven't seen it. Well, yeah, because it's a South Park, you know, because it's those guys, it feels a little bit like it's making fun of the fact that it's a musical. Mm-hmm. So you don't ha- feel like you have to buy into the form to accept it. So I totally get what Nina's saying about South Park insofar as I'm able to like the Book of Mormon, even though I'm not really a musical person or don't think of myself as a musical person. I have um, a thing that has happened to me so many times in life that it is definitely not a coincidence and it has made me very briefly wonder if there is a God or a devil who is punishing me because I can't, just as I can't with musicals, and it, a colleague at a place I used to work, I had taken this school trip to see because my colleague really wanted to go see Les Mis, remember it came out in like 2012 or something. And so I was like, okay, I'll go. And I just was like, this is what the fuck. And uh, a colleague was like, oh, yes, they, they had like season tickets and then they would gone a hundred times to see Les Mis. It's like, what? Whatever floats the boat. But I just can't do opera either. And like, 
at least three times in my life, I have been going off on one on a like a slightly sort of tongue in cheek rant, which you do sometimes. I do to try to like lighten the mood of a conversation. It turns out that I've immensely offended somebody because one of the times I went off on this rant about opera, and my friend's sister is a professional opera singer, and I didn't know that at the time. And then I did it again. And this person's wife, she's like, I'm like, why do I, I only ever have these rants, unless everybody has a relative who's a professional opera singer, but I, I, it's something that I don't get. I've tried, I, how many operas have I been to in my life? I mean, I went to one, I think I mentioned another episode with my dad, which was like a horrific experience, but that was after I'd done at least two of my rants. So I don't get opera either. See, I, I'm, I don't mind opera. I don't go to opera that often, but I do, I do sort of feel like I understand opera a bit more mm-hmm. in its sort of um, expression. Well, it depends on the opera, but, but in a sense, the expressive quality of the relationship between the character and the voice and the emotion, let's say, or the, or the particular relation that's taking place. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and of course, in a way, it's it's often seems very over the top or very dramatic, and maybe it's the dramatic the dramatic element. But at the same time, it's like I re- you know really don't like musicals particularly uh, or any of them that I've ever seen. And they they seem like a sort of cheapening of opera. Well, opera leans in, doesn't it? Yeah, opera leans all the way in, right? right? It's melodrama. Mm-hmm. I, I think about. Uh, the people who defend the Star Wars prequels on the grounds that they're operatic. Mm -hmm. Yes, they're terribly written, but it's for the purposes of making them kind of ridiculous that that itself is the artistic intent behind the Star Wars prequels is for them to be absurd and to have absurd dialogue, Uh, a kind of prose version of the opera. Mm. I can understand that. I've I've never really been an opera person, but I also have not lived in very many places where you could even go and do something like that. The thing for opera for me is that I don't aesthetically like the sound of it. I think it's probably quite hard to do. So maybe I haven't seen very many very good operas, or maybe I was forced to go to see things at an age when I just wasn't mature enough to appreciate it and just laughed. There are lots of music concerts I remember and things like ballet as a child where I'd go with a friend and we'd just be in, you know, when you have these like giggle fits where you're like, fuck, this is really the wrong moment and you just can't stop. But anyway, and classical music is quite, it's sort of, you know, it's quite austere. It takes itself quite seriously. Maybe it doesn't, but it seems that way when you're a child. But um, opera, I think it, it is quite difficult to sound. Like there's some instruments that are very easy to make a really nice sound like the harp, <laughs> uh, even things like the bagpipes, they have like, even if you're not very advanced, you can actually do some, something quite moving with it. But some instruments are like the trumpet is very hard to get right. Um, and I think the op- opera style of singing is probably very, very difficult. So maybe that's, that's something that people appreciate when they're real, real fans, that this is like a real feat to achieve something nice. I like a lot of Greek plays. Mm-hmm. Same. Yeah. I do tend to like Greek plays. So, but I, I feel that the trend has been away from that to take the theater away from that kind of stuff and in a different direction. But I do like austere, like I do like, you know, Beckett and all this kind of stuff. And as you say, Greek plays often when they're, they're done in a sort of minimal style. So I wonder if I said, I probably, I hear I am contradicting myself, but I thought it was because of the, step away from my mesis that it was annoying but actually i prefer this really stripped down so i'll say i i contradict myself i don't know what yeah. i think i like yeah i like some uh more more modern stuff like uh carnage is is mm-hmm. good mm-hmm. death of a salesman yeah mm-hmm. but yeah, yeah the I musicals think- musicals have been very hard for me and I saw quite, quite an interesting play the other day, actually. I went to see a kind of imagined dialogue between Sigmund Freud and C.S. Lewis. Oh, I guess I have seen that a few times, yes. Have you? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember what it's called, I'm afraid, but it was on at the King's Head in uh, Angel. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was well-directed. It was, 
yeah, I mean, it's just very interesting to see these kind of ideas staged and it's set during the war and it's this kind of, you know, well, Helen, you've seen it. So, uh, yeah, sort of Freud representing a kind of pessimistic kind of materialism and C.S. Lewis, uh, obviously, a kind of religious position, but it becomes quite personal, quite um, embodied. Uh, Freud is suffering from the, the mouth cancer. It's, it's the final year of his life. And C.S. Lewis is like a recent Christian convert. And a lot of the lines are taken from their works, right? So they're kind of voicing their books, if you like, in the form of a dialogue. Um, and there was something very enjoyable about sitting there for like an hour and a half or whatever it was, just listening to someone's imagined imagination of this conversation it's extremely wordy i suppose and and simple like in, in this very small theater which is the back room of a pub and even just the act of doing that i suppose after lockdown i mean things have been open for a while but you know to get back to this sort of more normal cultural life um there was something quite beautiful about it in the in the almost as the minimalism of the idea it's like well what would it be to have these two people these great figures have a conversation you know and it, and it didn't take sides in a way you know and I thought something about staging ambiguity and ambivalence and leaving the audience to decide for themselves or to think more you know is is courageous is is mature um and I wonder maybe with this animation you know, I thought because the credit it's interesting that the credit, I think this is formally quite interesting, the credits roll as she returns back on the train. So it's almost like the film finishes with her leaving, which mm -hmm. would have left it more open in an interesting way, potentially, but, you know, more, you know, up to the audience to decide whether she would return sooner or later or whatever, or whether she was really in love or what the next step was. So, but I thought that was actually quite, quite um, avant-garde in a strange way to, to finish the film before the film finished, the story finished, actually. It's interesting. I actually had thought that that was the end. And I yeah, went exactly. and did Me something too. else, then went back <laughs> on my Netflix app and was like, oh, there's a bit left and watched it. So yeah, uh, Takana had a really play. Uh, Takana had a really plays with the expectations that you have for how this sort of film should end, mm -hmm. both with cutting, you know, going to the credits when he goes to the credits, having the the meta moment where she discusses how it would end if it were a film, and then of course it is a film, so therefore it must end that way, right? But Taka Takahata wants to resist that while at the same time conceding to it. But it's very obvious that there is that tension and in his thinking about how to end it and in how to make an ending that's acceptable. Whereas I think in a lot of Miyazaki movies, it, it feels much more overtly like a cop out. I don't know how many uh, other Studio Ghibli films you guys have seen. I, I doubt any. Uh, but in a lot of the Miyazaki films, the ending is just straightforwardly a cop out where it seems like it's building up to a death of a character or to something quite, uh, uh, quite dark. You very overtly can feel what it would be that would be the thing that would happen. Uh, and then it just does not occur. I, in in uh, My Neighbor Tortoro, it feels as if the whole film is, is building up to a death. Uh, there are fan theories which depict the, uh, the magical character Tortoro as the god of death, uh, but nobody dies in the film. It feels entirely like a film about death, but death does not occur. Uh, that's the quintessential Miyazaki thing is to conjure up the feeling of what the serious film would do, but to just not do it. Mm -hmm. uh, similarly, in his critique of the Iraq war, you know, at the end of the film, all of the characters go, let's just end this stupid war. Uh, you know, this is Howl's Moving Castle. Uh, they just go, let's just end this stupid war. It's silly. And the war just ends. Right. Which, of course, makes you think, well, of course, that's not how it would end, is it? Uh, the Miyazaki movies make you go, well, come on, that that isn't how it really ought to end. I know how it really ought to end. And they've they've made you think enough that you you know what the what the ending ought to be, but they don't give it. To you. Mm -hmm. And if you weren't someone who could think of what the ending ought to be, then you could be fobbed off. Takahata, on the other hand, I think all of his endings are very, very thoughtful. I, I thought about it, but I, of course it can't be done. It's too ridiculous a film. Pompoko, 
with these raccoons with their terror campaign. Um, that that film just ends with, of course, you know, the, the terror campaign can't work. The raccoons they have a five year plan to fight the humans. <laughs> yeah, uh, and they they try to uh, stage sabotage attacks and. And, so, and of course, they can't win because they're just raccoons, but they're shape-shifting raccoons. They have supernatural powers on top of the fact that they're raccoons and they do terrorism. Uh, so on top of the fact that they're intelligent raccoons capable of planning and staging terror attacks, they can shape-shift. Is it a but even that, sort of, but it ends with the raccoons completely defeated and having to assimilate into regular life and uh, some of their raccoons being hit by trucks on the street. It sounds like Watership yeah. Down, but with raccoons. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And in some ways, it's much sillier and more upbeat than Watership Down. But yeah. in other ways, it's much darker <laughs> because it's much more overtly a social commentary. Watership Down, to a large degree, portrays itself as just a kind of depiction of nature. There's the human yeah. intervention at the start and, and a couple places throughout. But it's not as much overtly about trying to contend with the spread of or growth of modernity or industrialization, which Pompoko very clearly is. These raccoons have a habitat that is being visibly encroached upon, but they have time to try to do something about it. They're not surprised and then forced mm -hmm. to migrate like in Watership Down. They get to try to stage a fight back and they have factions that argue over what the best tactics are. Yeah, hmm. but I, I think ultimately, and I also thought about giving you the tale of Princess Kaguya, but that one is too much. It requires, I think, the earlier films to really appreciate what is being done there, because mm -hmm. it otherwise just feels like a fairy tale story about a princess. I'm but, really uh, glad you didn't give us 10 films to watch yeah. in order to understand the plot. <laughs> no, I think only yesterday just works on its own. It doesn't really need anything else. And I think if the audience has... I previously avoided these kinds of films. If you were to try one, Only Yesterday would be a good one to try. Yes. I was going to say about Only Yesterday, so the, the character's age, I think, is the same age as, like, my mum. So it would be a boomer because, you know, she's, like, 11 and 960, so a year younger than my mum. But also it's interesting because in literature, I've noticed, is it, was she 27 or 28, something like that? There's often... Yeah. And you, you mentioned this coming-of-age yeah. thing. I mm -hmm. do... A character in something I wrote, but I haven't finished years ago, but I will go back to it's 28. And I sort of started to notice that 28 is, a, is, a, is like a, a common age that comes up. I think it's maybe some kind of turning point in adulthood. But I also think that interestingly, like in, um, so this was, it's set in 1982. You know, th things have been delayed so much, turning like um, maturity turning points in life be have been uh, delayed so much that even 28 seems very young st still to be settling well, the, down and you know they're obviously saying oh you're so old or whatever but, i mean yeah. 27 does have a particularly sort of horrible resonance because it's the age at which many mm. musicians die right so there is this kind of ghoulish idea of like the 27 club because quarter life crisis kind of vibe yeah but it's like hendrix joplin morrison basquiat cobain mm -hmm. amy winehouse or like many 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 musicians and artists die at 27 and sometimes people even um uh suggest that some of these people who kill themselves or die of an overdose do so deliberately Jim at 27, Morrison. right? Yeah. So it, it's, it's like many, many people. I think for, for people in a, a position more similar to Tycho, you need a few years after you finish undergrad to get disenchanted with whatever it was that you picked after undergrad. And so somewhere around 25 it becomes possible to have this quarter life crisis and anywhere after 25, I think it's, it's plenty conceivable. And maybe even earlier for people who get really, really disappointed very quickly. <laughs> but for a lot of people, it takes a few years to start to have these kinds of experiences. If you do enough grad degrees, then it's delayed. Mm -hmm. you know, in my case, mm -hmm. I didn't finish my PhD until around 28. And then I finished my PhD and my father died. And, has a you know, resonance that period of life so i think uh i think it can happen in in the mid to late 20s still interestingly this film coming out in 1991 it comes out before the big crash in japan which mm -hmm. uh, happens in the mid 90s so one of the things i like about this is it emphasizes the critique even of the period before the crash 
uh, that capitalism, even before the crash and before the crisis, is not a satisfying experience. Even when Japan's growth rate is going through the roof and people who are boomers who have access to the good job in the city, uh, even those people can be very sad and very melancholic and surely were when they were in their 20s and 30s. Uh, they may just have forgotten what it was like. Just as everybody forgets what it's like to be in high school and makes dumb high school movies about how fun high school is, when that is not the experience <laughs> of anyone who actually <laughs> is in high school. It's just the half-remembered experience of the adult who has drunk the Kool-Aid of ideology and wants to rationalize everything they've ever done and every misery they've ever been through as part of their Whig progress narrative. Mm. Uh, if you're committed to the idea that your life has to be a progress narrative, then anything that happens, no matter how bad it is, has to be made retroactively edifying. to fit into a progress story and be edifying and so on. Uh, and that's that's why high school movies are so terrible, mm. uh, by and large, with some could, exceptions. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I mentioned before, but I kept a diary every day from 11 to 21. So I literally have a day by day recording of my the entirety of uh, secondary school um, and university, which is very weird to have. So I have my memories in the, the way that the film depicts, you know, largely from before. But I also literally can go back and check what was going on on every single day between like 1990 and about 2001. <laughs> At least it's a difference because I've noticed that if I ever write stuff down about you know take note of things when I look back or I accidentally fall upon some like document I've kept I'm like oh that's not what I oh like it's just it's kind of surprising in some way I think, I think yeah I mean I've been reading my 13 year old diary um recently and it's what's really striking about it it's, it's extremely repetitive it's it's very what concerns me and probably everyone else is like, you know, the minutiae of like personal relationships, who's fallen out with who, who's friends with who, who I'm close to, who's flirting with me, who I fancy. And I mean, honestly, my, my, my very, very reactionary conclusion reading this diary is that boys and girls should have nothing to do with each other until they're about 21 and that we would all be better off in extremely segregated environments. <laughs> And this might be the only way we would ever like learn Latin and Greek and and understand the classics properly because it's very obvious. And I and I don't think I was particularly exceptional or you know particularly interested in relationships or sex. But it's manifestly obvious that if you put a load of teenagers together in a co-educational situation, that they just become completely obsessed with each other, and they're not thinking about their schoolwork. And I was vaguely studious, but it was only during my A levels that I became subjectively motivated to to think I would say um you know I read novels before that but I was in a daydream I wasn't particularly good at school my brother has better GCSEs than me and he left at really? 16 yeah uh yeah and he's a builder <laughs> so it was only later on it was like yeah. the two years of A levels I suddenly got kind of gripped by thought it can happen somehow. quickly it can yeah happen really quickly, quickly. Yeah. and this but, is the thing um, just about like what you were saying about like the progress narrative like shit happens and you change sometimes or you discover stuff about yourself that you didn't know and everything changes. Yeah. So, but it's, it's kind of, I don't know. It's, it's, it's surprisingly mundane and repetitive. I think if you look at it day by day, it's like these minor embarrassments, these sort of micro feelings, these, you know, you sort of, I don't know how to relate particularly well to this like 13 year old girl. Like she's sort of boring and annoying, but maybe that's the same. I think the, yeah, I think the thing this, that stands yeah. out is just how much more miserable everybody was yes. than anybody can remember. Everybody was so yes. much more miserable than anybody can remember. And the only way to have even a, a glimpse of it is to have kept stuff from that time that you haven't edited. And a lot of people, if they find something from back then, they're so embarrassed, they get rid of it or they edit it or they do something with it so that they don't have to think about what it means uh, or to, to actually go to a high school. And to see the children mm. and to see that, A, they are children and B, they are completely miserable. They are. I think this is something that's relentlessly like miserable about unrelenting them. how cringy children are, you know, and how <laughs> cringy their desire. I mean, everybody's desires are pretty cringy, you know, at the end of the day. But, you know, she, she says, as many people do, she sees herself as a movie star. She really desires to be desired and to be the central attention. And it is all and how petty. Her, her sisters are sort of horrible and then she sort of plays into that horrible 
uh, relationship with them. But the, maybe there's one thing about childhood that, you know, we're not equipped. We're never equipped for life, really. And as you say, as a, especially the teen, I mean, children do go through a lot like that's, you know, it's not to say that like, oh, they should appreciate what they have because being a child's pretty nice. Being a child's absolutely fucking horrific. You're thrown into a world completely unprepared. Everything's a trauma. You come into terms with loss every single second of the day. I mean, that's how you become a human subject, not having shit. It's horrible. <laughs> but, but you know, is there a thing of retrospective? You're like, God, that would have been, not, you know, if I was in my state now and I went back to a world where I only had to stay at school until 2.30, I mean, my school's not like that, but I know some schools like until 2.30 in the afternoon, or I could just read or do a bit of homework sometimes. But I mean, obviously the rose, rose tinted is a phenomenon. And children are not, you know, being a teenager is horrendous coming to terms with things. And part of the horrendous thing is just how horrible teenagers are to each other. I was in a mm-hmm. uh, shopping center the other day and was witnessing like a group of tweenagers, I guess, like 12 year olds or 11 year olds. Um, and the way that they were dealing with each, with each other. And I, you know, this is something I remember from, from that age is really nasty, you know, and it's, it's quite, children can be very cruel. <laughs> to each other. I, I remember uh, you know profoundly at, at around the age of 10 or 11 just um just just that was around the time when you had the early bloomer kids who were starting to get into each other but then you have the late bloomer kids who aren't mm-hmm. i was in the late bloomer camp so you watch this happen to these other children and you think well this must eventually happen to me because it happens to everybody with puberty right and you watch as people completely lose interest in anything except except each other. And it's kind of horrifying. I remember being kind of uh, horrified at 10 by the oncoming adolescent Mm -hmm. storm, which seemed to get everybody one by one, no matter how cool or interesting anybody was, they became this completely boring, self-obsessed, other people-obsessed person. And I went, you know, how, how can we avoid this? And I got all into reading Gandhi. It was a whole thing. <laughs> How can I be a non-sexual it's very, being? It's very sweet. Mm-hmm. It's very sweet. But yeah, it does come with, it's a huge mess. It's a huge mess. And this is something you do mention about single-sex education is, mm. I mean, just from experience, I went to a school that was the first year they took girls and it had been a school that had been up for hundreds of years with all boys. And there were 20-something girls in my year. Good one. All they gave us was a skirt. Like, you know, it's these things that like are profound um, existential things to deal with that in this, I don't know if it's just this modern age or whenever, you know, just forgotten because they just are things that are there or it's just nature. So it'll just whatever. And these things are, you know, and nothing, nothing's easy, you know, and these schools, because for financial imperative had to go co-ed. So it had to happen in some way and it would always happen with some kind of like um, difficulty. So, you know, nothing's perfect, but it is but a lot of people in various different ways deal with puberty by delaying it, um, by not confronting it, by not wanting to go through it because it's horrible. And lots of girls become anorexic. You know, they might... Read Gandhi. I don't know. They might do I mean, that's a relatively good way of trying to avoid puberty. I mean, if everybody just, you know, started reading Gandhi instead of starving themselves. I see. I I think I just wrote, I wrote, well, I know I did because I also kept it. I I just wrote hundreds and hundreds of really bad poems and hung out with the boys who played with long hair in bands who smoked weed and played Dungeons and Dragons. And that sounds like a good solution. It wasn't bad, to be honest. I think, like, given the horror, like you're saying, of teenage girls, like the embodiment issue. I mean, there were girls even in my, you know, relatively small, rural, comprehensive, who were engaging in cutting. Uh, I tried it once. I was like, this this sucks. Uh, (laughs) Anorexia, bulimia, so on, you know. And Mm. really, and I just sort of didn't get it. Like, I was just like, "Mm." Why would you do that? You know, so I think I think I yeah. And then I got very into music. So I was kind of more into the 
I don't know. It was, I was a bit ironic. I was a yeah. bit like, you know, it's the 90s after all. And there's lots of boredom, I think. But I think there's something very beautiful about that. And I want to write this defence of 90s boredom because I think we need to bring it back. We do. <laughs> we need, do need a bit more nothing happening, a bit more boredom. Exactly. exactly. A bit less brush. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it sounds like Nina was pretty cool. I was, I don't know, there wasn't really such a thing, but I think that was good in the sense that there was very little expectation. This is, I, I keep going on about this, but like nobody cared who you were, what you did. You know, in, in a sense, it was cool in the sense that people were just like left alone to become who, you know, who they were. Like it was extraordinary, really. It was a, a real empty freedom somehow. Well, we'll talk more about empty freedom on the B-side, which will be coming right up for you, you know, for those of you who listen to us on Patreon. Thank you guys so much for listening. And have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.